two and a half, three months after our manager, Kenny Jackie, got sacked. And I was out of contract in the end of the season. And then the new manager come in, and I've had him before. I had him when I was on loan at Salford. And my loan didn't go very well. Um, yeah. But like, there's, there's been other times when I signed, signed for Wigan on, I think it was, no, it wasn't late in the transfer window, but it was, I got a phone call on the Wednesday night from my agent saying, Wigan want to take you on loan and they want you to train tomorrow. So <laughs> I, I was in the flat, uh, in my flat up there with my girlfriend, got off the phone and I said to her, I was like, oh, got a, I've got to go down to Wigan. I, I learned late on, but I was lucky that I didn't have to learn it at the time. Because I, I don't know how I would have, how I would have dealt with uh, getting released at the the scholar age, or even later on when you're looking for a pro contract. I, I was very lucky. I know what the what the stats say of players making it through, even from from 14, 15. It's, it's very slim. So I was I was lucky on that side. I think that's probably something they could work on instead of bringing new young coaches through to be like robots and reading from the manual and mm. this is you you can look at the coaching book and you can see exactly what we're going to do Monday to Friday mm. the I think what they could improve on is bringing through managers better equipped to like deal with the psychological side of it but for aspiring coaches is there any like golden advice you would offer them in terms of if you're only going to get one thing right what what should it be to get wrong but there was kind of there was no crazy rush for me leaving to go to Yeovil because I'd had a chat with the Cardiff manager at the time who was Neil Warnock and he kind of said uh, to me and a few others basically like you're good but you're not my kind of player we're kind of proving the concept here tom that there is a way to deliver well you call it bad news or, or news you don't want to hear but ultimately the truth even even if it's something the player is not going to want to hear or would like something else there is still an argument for honesty and delivering that message in the right way and for those last 10 minutes i reckon gillingham passed the ball around the back four for nine and a half of those minutes with none of us moving because like we weren't going to run around and get injured because yeah. no point we were up Gillingham was safe but they just passed it around between them for 10 minutes and then yeah whistle went and it was just the biggest party ever for the next four weeks then and um, it, it was unbelievable um, I've had someone tell me before that I'm quite difficult to like read with stuff like this but I'm I'm because I think I'm a mixture of both. There'll be games, and I've had, I've had one or two games this season where I have, like the Ferguson, I've had the hairdryer, uh, and it's been deserved. And then I've gone out the second half. I've been, I've been better. Then there's been other times where I've, I've gone through like a tricky patch, and then like the assistant or the manager himself has kind of like called me into the office or just at the side of the pitch. I think that insight is genius, man. Because not only are you highlighting that some people are different you know some people are apple some people are microsoft we understand this concept right they need different stuff 
but you're also saying that one person can also be built. So you're talking about a multifaceted level of management for just one player. And that's what young coaches, aspiring coaches, need to be thinking about and working on if they want to work with players like you when, you, when they get to the pro level. And then we had like a big family day on the last last home game of the season. The owners put on like a bit of a bit of a do for family, friends and whatever. That was good. And then uh, we all went away then to, to Marbella for the summer. And I won't tell you anything about that trip on this podcast. But, uh, Wish I had a pound every time I watched you take a practice penalty, looking <laughs> the other way, no eyes as if to give the keeper the, uh, the slip. But I, w- I wouldn't have to work now, that's for sure. But... Yeah, my, absolutely. Uh, my, my eyes were in the wrong way because that's what I was aiming. <laughs> maybe, maybe so, maybe so. Welcome to this episode of the Pro Player Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom James, Welsh footballer, professional footballer in the EFL League. Currently at Leighton Orient, Tom's previous clubs include Cardiff City, Yeovil Town, Ibernian in Scotland, Wigan Athletic and Salford City. Tom grew up in the Cardiff City Academy from nine years of age and managed to get all the way through to a professional contract. He's going to talk to us today about the journey, about what life is really like in the Football League and about the dream of living as a professional footballer. Delighted to have you here, Tom. Welcome to the Pro Player Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to it. So, Tom, brilliant. Great to have you on the on the podcast. Unbelievable insight I know we're going to get today. I think lo- lots of places we could start, but I think a lot of people will want to know what it's really like to live and breathe and walk the path of being a professional footballer. And sometimes we get a view of you know what we might see from the highest level in terms of the Champions League and the Premier League and the glitz and glamour and all that stuff. But I think people really want to know what it's like day to day, you know, to achieve this dream, first of all, and then to stay there and, and continue to do it day to day. So can you talk to us a little bit about, about the journey, perhaps how it all started for you and maybe we'll get into that later? Yeah, um, so I was, I think I was seven when I first got um, scouted in like a, it's like a summer soccer school thing uh, in like the summer holidays. Um, one of the scouts, I uh, don't know if you know him, Gary Wilmot, uh, come up to my mum towards the end. And, uh, and yeah, he basically just said that uh, he liked what he saw and he thought it would be a good idea for, for me to come down and do um, do a trial with the, what was it back then? It was a centre of excellence. Um, and obviously, as soon as my mum told me that Cardiff were interested, I was... That was it. I was there. I was going. Um, I don't think my mum or my dad had any questions about it. It was just kind of, right, let's just see how this goes, see what happens with it. Um, so, yeah, I did the Centre of Excellence. I think it was, I think it was about four to six weeks. Um, there was, I don't know, about like hundreds of kids there, just all charging about the pitch at the same time, having a kick about, basically. Um, but, yeah, but by the end of that, they... They saw um, something in me, and they said they want to they want to give me a well, yeah, I think it was a contract back then, even then, um, to start playing with the the academy, uh, and yeah, it all just kind of started from there. Um, I went into the to the trial as a as like a winger striker, um, 
And as soon as I got into the, to the academy, my, my first ever coach, Di Haggart, he said straight away, nah, you're going back in defence. And I nearly walked home straight away. Uh, <laughs> I was human. Um, but he, I don't know, he, he must have just seen something, something where he thought I was going to improve more as a player um, in a more defensive role. And he couldn't have, he couldn't have been any more right. I think I think I would have probably been out of the game a long time ago if I'd have stayed as a striker winger. Um, I think being more defensive suits me down to the ground. And I mean he saw that when I was six or seven. So if 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 it was luck, then it was very lucky. But if it was him knowing football, then it's it's unbelievable from it. It it um, was fate, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, well it yeah, it must be. Um and yeah, it's just just that from there, just kind of didn't think too much of it. Um, being like in the academy and stuff, just kind of going about it as you would when you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You, it doesn't really mean anything. You, you're kind of just having a kick about with your mates um, a couple of times a week, uh, and yeah, just kind of kept going and kept going until I was getting into the more serious ages of like fourteen, fifteen, when you're thinking, "Am I going to get a scholar? Am I not going to get a scholar?" Um, and yeah, I, I did. Um, I remember I had a, a lot of growing pains I think it was the yeah it was the year of getting a scholar so I hardly played I had loads of trouble with severs and um Oscar slatters like growing pains in your in your knees and your heels um and it kind of wrote me off for pretty much the whole season so I was I remember I was going into that meeting so nervous didn't know what was going to happen um and yeah luckily Luckily, they must have seen enough in the past couple of years. And I mean, they see it every year, players having growing pain. So it's it's not like a crazy shock to them. Um, so yeah, got, got a two-year scholar. Um, and then did that with, with you. You were looking after me there. Um, and yeah, they were some unbelievable years. Um, so many good memories of of playing and all the stuff that happens off the pitch. Um, yeah, and then yeah, halfway through that, I got got off of my pro contract, and then then we started started again, really. And the dream starts for real, yeah. I want, I definitely want to get into that um, period where it starts to turn serious because I think there's huge insight to offer around that. But maybe a a quick word towards uh, towards Di and uh, and Gary, great football men, and obviously did a great job there with you at the start. And I remember coming off. Uh, across Gary, especially in his blind Ronda days, and he had amazing teams up there, proper football. You know, the back the back end of blind Ronda, where literally the behind the goal was a wall and nothing else, just a mountain, and you couldn't go any further. You had to turn around and come back, and nobody wanted to go there and play them because they were so good and so hard to play against. I later got to work with Gary, obviously in Cardiff as well, and I think that's a really important point you make. A lot of people have come on the podcast and talked about understanding who they are or what they are or what they're going to be. Um, and we had Ellis on uh, a recent episode who, who was very candid about the fact that he knew early on what he was as a footballer and who, who he was going to be. And his his dad was very honest with him in telling him, you're going to have a really tough career if you continue on this path. And eventually he chose uh, to go into agency. And you're saying the kind of same thing there, that that decision maybe is made by someone else for you. But at some point in your, your life, probably early on, sounds of it, you accepted, yeah, I'm going to be better as a defender and that's what I'm going to embrace. Is that a difficult decision? Did you wrestle with that decision or was it plain, 
blatantly obvious to you that that was the right way for you to go? Uh, definitely at the time, I definitely wrestled with it. I, I would have been going home to mum and dad saying, I don't want to be a defender. I want to want to be a striker because, I mean, that's what probably 90% of kids growing up want to do. They want to be the striker, yeah. scoring all the goals. It's more exciting, and... isn't it? More exactly, yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely at the time, I, I wasn't happy with it. But I mean, like I said, looking back now, it's it was hundred percent the right thing to do. Um, and I see the amount of running and pressing that strikers and wingers do now. I got no interest in being up there. Uh, I'm quite happy sat at the back. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, it, it turned out it was a it was a really good really good decision. Great decision. You uh, you also alluded there to some of the. The overuse injuries that we know about now, obviously the Osgood slatters in the knee and the severs in the in the back of the heel. And for, for people who don't know what those things are, could you give us a little bit of a rundown in terms of how that comes about? Yeah, so I mean I, I don't know all the ins and outs, but as as far as I know, it's 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 basically when your when your bones are growing quicker than your like your tendons or your ligaments can like keep up with. So basically you get loads of like inflammation and I mean, it's, it's agony at the time where you just sort of walk, sort of, obviously you sort of run if it's, if it's a really bad case. Um, and yeah, I, I remember I was definitely not the only one in that age group who, who struggled with it. Um, and there, there'll be, there'll be kids going through it now. Um, yeah. and it's quite common as well as once you, once you get past like the, the soreness, because because you've like grown quicker than your body can keep up with, mm. you kind of lose a lot of um, coordination. Mm. So you kind of, you lose track of how like long your legs are basically, which means mm. you're coming back into football and you're, I don't know, half an inch, an inch taller, still trying to control the ball half an inch to an inch shorter. Um, mm. So it, it did take a lot of... Um, getting used to um yeah i mean like like i said i was i was very lucky that um they must have seen enough in me to to offer me something well i think you make an excellent point there because there'll be a lot of parents listening a lot of coaches listening and you know one it's great that they now understand or can help to understand what their sons or daughters are going through but also for coaches assessing talent and potential at that time we need to make sure that we remember that your growth and maturation is a massive part of youth and talent development and you know god forbid we have a kid released because he's lost his ability or he's just not good enough when in fact they're going through what you've just described there because you are living proof that you can suffer with those things for a period of 12 months 18 months whatever it might be and you can still be a professional footballer so that's great insight as well isn't it yeah and it's it's, it's the, the worst bit about it is the time and you have it because you're getting it at the ages of like 14, 15, 16. And at that time, they're the most important years of your life because you're you're so nervous going into whether or not you're going to get a scholar. And then you're you're sat on the sat on the sidelines because you can't you can hardly run about. Um so it, it is a shame. But yeah, like you said, the the coaches and the people one and the ones making the decisions need to need to remember what the players are before they have that because you know a couple of months after they they're back they're going to be 
not only as good technically and as a footballer, but they're going to be physically improving as well. Um, so, yeah. No doubt. And um, we talked a little bit before in recent episodes about this idea of recency bias. And when, you know, when it comes to assessment time or let's say it's a six-week assessment or a three-month assessment or even a end-of-year review, a lot of coaches can tend to be biased by what they've seen recently. So the performances in the last couple of weeks before the evaluation or, you know, maybe even the last month. And, and you know, we tend to forget that six months ago for a, for a British season and perhaps three months ago for an American season, th- there was some, a completely different scenario, you know, on the pitch and in terms of where the players are learning and, and that kind of stuff. And I think most professional academies are, are, are much better at understanding all that now. We certainly hear... Uh, there's certainly a lot more coach education and, and advocacy gone on around all that. And I think as well at the time, because you alluded to our time there at Cardiff, you know, we were very much aware of the medical side and the, the physical side and the growth, the maturation side and the science side, you know, we had down. We, we would have multidisciplinary meetings with all the medical team in and, and we would have been all over that behind the scenes. But I don't know that we did enough in terms of the psychological aspect and, you know, the educational aspect and the perhaps involving players in that. Do you, do you feel that maybe there's a, a trick being missed where players are away from the field for a long period of time or they are watching from the side? It kind of feels a little bit like you, you try to involve them, but it's it's a task and it's not really a thing. Could that be done better? Should that have been done better? Were you aware that you were outside of the main training group during those years, during that time? Or was it kind of well, this is just my lot in life. Um, I don't. I don't remember feeling like that. Um, like looking back, I think. I mean, you say could you have done more? Everyone can always do more and stuff. But you, a lot of the time, you're so caught up in what you're doing. It's 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 very hard to then go and look outside. If that makes sense, um, because when when a player's not he's not even out on the pitch because he's in the physio room they're kind of like the the medical team's like responsibility then so i think you say could coaches and that do more i think the whole club as a whole can do more because if i'm in the in the physio room for i don't know a month two months three months it, I don't think it should have to come down to you as the first team coach. You can still do it, but I don't think it should come down solely to you as the person to keep checking up because there's so many people involved at the club. It's a lot easier for the club to share that uh, like responsibility around than to put it down to one person. This is a really interesting thread here. So if I can jump forward a bit from your youth days into your professional career now, and if you've had a period of inactivity, what would your ideal scenario as a professional footballer be? So let's say hypothetically you are playing in the team at Leighton Orient and you've played the first 20 games of a season and then you get a month-long injury. What would you want if you could choose from your head coach, from your first team manager, in terms of managing that month with you? Uh, well, I, John, I... Was it two years ago? Ne- nearly bang on two years ago. I literally had that exact situation. I was, but it was a longer period out. I played up until early December, and then I was out then for the whole season. Um, 
I tore my hamstring, like the tendon off the bone, and that was it. Four months done. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I might be a little bit different to a lot of people um, in situations like that. I, I didn't actually need a whole lot because as, as soon as I did it on the pitch, I knew then pretty much, I didn't know how long I'd be out for, but I knew I was going to be out for a while. So I kind of got my head around that pretty quick. Um, and I, I was lucky in a sense, quite bad to say, but I was lucky in a sense that I had two or three other of my close mates at the time on long-term injuries as well. So we had like a little group of two or three of us in like the physio room and doing our rehab and our gym sessions like all together. Um, but I think, I think on a whole, so long as, as long as you know your manager or your coach are like checking in on you, seeing how you're doing, it doesn't have to be every day, it doesn't have to be every week. But like little comments can help people because I've seen, I've seen some players in the past who have been in like, I don't want to say dark places, but you have your ups and downs when you're injured. So like little comments here and there can give you like a little boost here and there. And it could be do you massive. mind if I... Do you mind if I ask you about that? Because I, I promised when I started this that I would ask the questions that I thought people would want to hear, right? And what, so tell us then, because loads of people out there are going to want to know this. What was the best thing that a coach said to you during that time that actually made a difference and, and why? One of those little dropping comments, what was it? Um. So, it, well, it was a little bit tricky because I got injured and then... Uh, I don't know, a couple of, no, it would have been about two, two and a half, three months after our manager, Kenny Jackie, got sacked. And I was out of contract in the end of the season. Um, and I'd, I'd been told verbally that I was going to get a new deal. But then obviously he loses his job and I'm thinking, what the hell is going to happen now? Because I knew, I knew with the injury and how long it was going to take, I was only going to be able to make one maybe two appearances if I was lucky to like kind of I don't know just to kind of finish the season off and as a goal for me to keep doing my rehab um and then the new manager come in who's the one now Richie Wellens and I've had him before I had him when I was on loan at Salford and my loan didn't go very well um yeah um so then I was thinking again like this could be me, This I could be moving again. Because the couple of years before, I'd moved to a couple of different clubs, loans and stuff. Yeah. I was thinking, yeah. I'm going to pack up pack up home and move on again. Um, but then on, on his first day, he called me into an office and we had like quite a long, in-depth chat of what happened at Salford and why it didn't work out. And by the end of it, he was basically saying, we need to get you back fit, ready for next season. And straight away, obviously, it kind of kind of set me back a bit, thinking, how, how has everything changed so fast from six months ago where I wasn't making the squads mm. um, to now you're thinking about me being in your plans for next season? So, I mean, that, that was the biggest thing for me, that he was already looking forward to next season with, with me involved. And why was it, Tom? Like, what Did he give you a reason as to why... He felt that way at Salford, but then he felt differently here. Like, did he tell uh, you that? Yeah, the, the easiest way to, to to explain it is there was a lot of things going on off the pitch. Um, mm. 
which basically didn't link up with me being involved. Some things he had control of, some things he didn't have control of. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he, he he explained all that to me, and it all made sense. And now we've got we've got a really good relationship now, and we're still working together, and we're we're doing well together. I definitely want to get into this idea of what happens, you know, at the end when you have to find another club, because that's real life, isn't it? But if I take you back a little bit, just before Kenny Jacket got sacked, then during that period where you were injured, did you remember Kenny doing anything there that really helped you? That really kind of you think, yeah, that was good management, or that's actually made a difference to my recovery or my my mental state or my ability to to you know function within the group. Was there anything he did during that time that you can remember? Well, like he, he would like if I saw him in and around the place, he'd have a quick chat with me here and there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like he he was very old school, and I think everyone who was at the club at the time would say exactly the same thing: old school manager. Um, so he, he didn't have a lot lot to do with stuff off the pitch he was kind of all just football 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 uh, and I, I didn't mind that at all um, it was that's kind of where his assistant Joe Gallen kind of stepped into it um, yeah. and I, I'd have chats with him near enough every day with like little things like I was today being how's it feeling mm-hmm. um, and just yeah like I said just kind of making you feel like you're still still part of it as, as much as as much as you're not, you like to still think that you are. Yeah, uh, of course. I thought he was quite good at doing that. Mm. You, you alluded there a little bit to the day-to-day of it. I th- if we can get into that, I think there's lots of people would like to know what it's like, you know, a Monday to Friday for a professional footballer. Perhaps not so much like which days do you train and that, but when, you know, you come in, you, you do your kind of prehab or your bits beforehand, doing the gym stretching, whatever, and then you have a 10 o'clock start, whatever it might be, you're out onto the pitch. Do you know what you're going to be doing in that session beforehand? And is it like, you know, are you still kind of hoping that it's fun or you're doing, having a game or like we've had a couple of players on who's like, yeah, pros still want to play games, small-sided. We had Remy Allen on at the first episode um, and Remy's coming to the end of her playing career, but she was talking about, yeah, even as a pro, you you still want to have a small-sided game, right? But is, is it like every day different? Is like three, four weeks at the same thing? Are they... Are they teaching you the game model? Like, what is actually happening on a day-to-day basis in in the football league? So, if we've done well on a Saturday, we'll kind of do a similar, if not similar, exactly the same kind of week leading up. Um, so you'll you'll get a rough idea, um, but yeah, you, you'll always have someone asking like the physios or the fitness coach or the assistant, like, what's the plan today? Um, so you'll you'll have a pretty good idea by the time you're going out to train uh, what you're going to do. Uh, but I mean, you as a coach, you'll know you always like to throw a little spanner in the works um, somewhere. Um, so yeah, you'll get a pretty rough idea, but um, they'll always have a few tricks up their sleeve. And is it still the case that, would you say in your experience that you get to a Thursday, two teams are picked, you're either on the bibs team or the non-bib team, and then that's how you know you're in the starting 11? Is that still the case? Uh, yeah, pr- pretty much. We- we'll do that on a Friday, though. We-, we, uh, we'll we we'll do all the shape. Well, not, not all of it, but we'll, we'll do the-, the final bits and bobs on the Friday. Uh, and yeah, I mean, th- there's no hiding it, really, is it? When when you've got your first choice keeper um, started on one side and then what looks to be the, the start 11. So it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. not an easy thing to uh, to hide that. So yeah, you'll, you'll get... Yeah. 
you get pretty much exactly the same 11 on the Saturday as you do on the Friday morning. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, no hiding that there. What, um, if I could take it on then, what about, you know, so what would you say, like, are there points during the week where, you know, it, it's obviously very repetitive. It's obviously very, you know, you obviously have to be dedicated. You're obviously, you know, living your entire life 24-7 to perform physically in a training session or in a match. But are there bits that players look forward to? Are there, you know, obviously game day we can talk about later, but are there bits during the training week where, you know, you're a bit more looking forward to than others for any reason? Or is it like, all right, we get through this, we get through this, we're counting down the days to the match. How does it work? Um, it, it kind of depends on the week, I'd say. Um, so like you, you'll get some weeks where you do um, a lot more shape and walk through shape and um, like the, the gaffer will, will say, like, I know, you, I know you don't really want to be doing this. It's not fun or whatever, but it's, it needs to be done. And then it comes to the Saturday and what you've worked on has worked. And I mean, if, if it's working and you're winning, you're getting results, you, you'll do walk through shapes as, as much as they need you to. Um, so I, I think the older I've got, the more I've understood that the process of what you do during the week is more important for the Saturday. Um, yeah, everyone loves doing small-sided games, but you don't get a hell of a lot like out of that in terms of like the tactical and learning what the opposition are going to do. Um, and, and to be fair, the, the coaches and that here are, are good at mixing stuff up with if we if we've done the shape and the, done the the more boring stuff, you'll you'll get your rewards um, at the end if you're doing, like you said, games or costume finishing, some sort of competition. Um, so yeah, so as long as as long as the coaches are mixing up and keeping interest in somewhere in the in the training session, I think uh, I think everyone's pretty happy. And and that's an art in itself. Um, I'll never forget your face as a young man when we did cross and finishing. You you fancied yourself on both sides. You you could whip a ball as well as anybody, and you could you always fancied yourself as a bit of a striker as well. And you're smiling now even because I'm sure you remember. <laughs> but it is important, isn't it? Those things are important. Yeah, definitely. Um, when when you're younger, that's kind of all you want to do. It's just yeah. the cross and finishing and the the shooting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but like that kind of, that, that feeling of doing a fun drill like that, kind of, it, it never really leaves you. Um, we've, we've got players here in their 30s, mid 30s, late 30s. They're looking forward to that just as much as the, the youth team players who have stepped up for the day. Um, so yeah, so as long as you, you keep the, keep the drills interesting. Uh, I think that's the main thing. So, Let's get into it, Tom. What, what? Maybe that's what coaches need to do in the professional game to be relevant and current and foster relationships, develop a rapport. You know, whatever level they feel like they want to, you know, open up and, and be close to players. Some do, some don't. Right? In your experience, perhaps let's take Leighton Orient out of it now because you're there. But perhaps in the past, what what would you be able to share with aspiring coaches, young players, people wanting to follow and work in the professional game? What are the pitfalls? What do coaches get wrong? Where do the pros turn around going, oh, here we go, roll the eyes, this is it again? Like, what what are coaches getting wrong, do you think? And and we can leave later on in our build. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is the honesty side of it. I think 
I've had I've had quite a few managers in my career so far, and it's quite rare to get one who will be honest from first day of the season to last day of the season. Um, and I've have the tough conversations with you when when you're not going to be playing. Um, they kind of leave it, don't say anything, and then you find out on the Friday when you're doing the shape that you're not playing. Um, and you could have been playing the last four or five games thinking you've done all right, and then you find yourself out of the team and you're kind of scratching your head on the side wondering what the hell's going on. Um, little things like that kind of, I think especially nowadays, the like the man management is just as important as like the actual football management. You, you hear so many stories of um, Sir Alex Ferguson, how we got to know every player, their family, parents. I'm not saying every manager needs to be as detailed as him because that's that's on another level of being elite. Um, but little things of knowing knowing how each player kind of ticks and how are you going to get the best out of them? Um, if you if one player's having a tough time in the first half, another one's, um, or if two people are having a tough time, one might need a like a, a big row and the other one might need an arm around the shoulder um, instead of both of them getting getting a massive telling off. You need to, you need to know. Um, and I, I think it all kind of comes into one of that man management, knowing exactly who you're dealing with and, and how to do it. We we had your one of your former teammates, Dave Fitonder, on a couple of episodes ago from the youth team days. And Dave said exactly the same thing. He actually said that for those managers that did develop a rapport and did, um, you know, go that extra mile in terms of getting to know the individual, he said there was a definite increase in terms of output, work rate, you know, and feeling towards wanting to do things, not just for your own professional pride or for the fans, but also to re re repay the manager. So if if it's true that these are the managers and coaches that are getting more out of players, why isn't why isn't every manager doing it? Because ultimately that's what they want, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not an easy thing to do for for a manager who's managing 20, 25 to 30 players to kind of know exactly what each player needs. But like I don't, I don't, it doesn't need to come down to like exact science, I don't think. You just need to know each personality. Um, I, I, I agree with Dave when he says the managers that you get on with and you, you have that good relationship with, you'll, you'll kind of do anything for them and out on the pitch, you'll, you'll run through a brick wall. Um, and yeah, I mean, like I said, it's just the, it's the little things that add up because it's, you don't need one massive gesture from a manager. You, you don't really want that, to be honest. You just want to, you want to know that he's got your back and, and that you'll have his. I think that's really interesting what you say there. I feel like in my career, most of the best of this work has come from stuff that's happened behind the scenes. So players will come to you and say, this is going on, or I've got this. And you kind of deal with it with them one-on-one. -on -one. And it's not giving special treatment or preferential treatment, but it's meeting the moment in terms of, okay, they came to me because they needed something and we came up with something that helped. And like you said, it's probably not the right thing to do a grand gesture of telling everybody in a team setting what you're doing. It, 
is very much a, an individual thing, isn't it? And can you recall any times maybe in your career where where someone's done that for you? And, and did that then lead into a good relationship with said coach in your professional life? Um, I mean, there, there will have been so many. Um, but like, like I said, the, the ones that, that mean the most to me are the ones that you might not even notice at the time because it's so small. It's kind of, you'll think back in like half an hour to an hour, you'll think, oh, actually, that was, that was a good bit of management by him. It's kind of, it's got me thinking of, of what I need to do now. Um, yeah, like I said, little things like with when you're injured, like little comments, um, they can help when you're going through a tough time on the pitch. Um, you might need to, to work on a certain technique. They'll take you to the side after training and, and work on that. Um, or if you're a different type of person, he's calling you out and he's he's making you know that what you're doing ain't good enough. Um, I've had a few of them, that's that's for sure. Um, well, because yeah. you, you you lit up a bit then when you said that it wasn't a it wasn't a fear of it. It was like almost like wow, yeah, it was interesting. So, how do you light someone? How do you want to be lit up? How does it work? Because people don't get this right. They think that just by raising their voice and shouting at someone, you're going to get a desired reaction, like it's Hollywood and like we see in the movies, right? And that's all rubbish. But how does it work? How does it work for you? Um, I've, I've had if it's it, worked. If it's I've, worked. I've, I've had someone tell me before that I'm quite difficult to like read with stuff like this. Um, but I'm, I'm because I, I think I'm a mixture of both. Um, there'll be games and I've had, I've had one or two games this season where I have like the Ferguson, I've had the hairdryer uh, and it's been deserved. And then I've gone out the second half. I've been, I've been better. Um, then there's, there's been other times where I've, I've gone through like a, tricky patch and then like the assistant or the manager himself has kind of like called me into the office or just at the side of the pitch and just had a quiet chat with me to see what's what's going on if there's anything that they can help with um and then yeah the the weeks after that you see an improvement in me um so yeah I, I think I'm a little bit trickier than some um but that, that's that's where it comes into it of, of knowing your players and knowing the situation you're in of of what exactly I need to to get going again. I think that insight is genius, man, because not only are you highlighting that some people are different, you know, some people are Apple, some people are Microsoft. We understand this concept, right? They need different stuff. But you're also saying that one person can also be both. So in your mm -hmm. example, sometimes you need this, but sometimes you need that. It's not just a one size fits all. So now the level of complexity for any aspiring coach or manager goes through the roof again. Because it isn't as simple as saying, well, every time something happens to Tom, he has adversity in his career, he needs this. That's not necessarily the case. You're actually talking about a multifaceted level of management for just one player. And that's what young coaches, aspiring coaches, need to be thinking about and working on if they want to work with players like you when you when they get to the pro level. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's. I think that's probably something that... Um... I don't know how far, how deep it goes and who's who's running it, but the people taking the coaching badges and stuff, um, I think that's probably something they could work on instead of bringing new young coaches through to be like robots and reading from the manual and mm. this is, 
you, you can look at the coaching book and you can see exactly what we're going to do Monday to Friday. Mm. The, I think what they could improve on is bringing through managers better equipped to like deal with the psychological side of it. Um, because you, you'll know as, as much as anyone that psychologically football's stressful. It's, it's not an easy, an easy job as, as much as a good job. It's, it's not an easy job to deal with a lot of the time. Mm. Um, so if, if managers and coaches can come through and they can sort a player's head out, they'll see a hell of a difference on the pitch um, as well. You're quite right. And I've sat on both sides of the fence, obviously going through the coaching badges and delivering the coaching badges. And I'm not, I've am not. i been out of it for 10 years or so now, but I'm not sure that enough of the focus on those courses is or was about what you're talking about here. Definitely it's the tactics. Definitely it's the physical and science side. Definitely it's the how to put on a coaching session. But I, I think it's getting better. And I think the A licence and the Pro licence is now going into a lot more of this stuff and branching into this area. But it's a good move, I think, for coach education to go because you're you're another professional player here telling us that that is still the biggest issue in the game and, and the one untapped resource that would get the most out of people. So I think that's really, really interesting. I want to take you back a little bit. What would you say to a young Tom James... 17, 18 year old in the youth academy before you get your pro now, what advice would you go back and give yourself? If you could write a letter to yourself or send a voice note to yourself, what would you say to young Tom James? Um, I don't know, that's, that's, that's tough. I, th- I think I think the biggest thing was would be to like, obviously the enjoy it more than you are at the moment because you're kind of stressing about it too much. Um. I think if I think if you're good enough, you're gonna make it no matter what. Um, if I, th- I think at the time I used to think if I don't get a contract here, that's the end. Um, there's there's no chance of kind of going and playing for a different club. It was it was Cardiff or nothing. Um, I think that's. That's something I learned. I, I learned late on, but I was lucky that I didn't have to learn it at the time, because um, I, I don't know how I would have how I would have dealt with uh, getting released at the the scholar age, or even later on when you're looking for a pro contract. Um, I, w- I was very lucky. I know what the what the stats say of players making it through. Um, even from from fourteen fifteen, it's it's very slim. So I was I was lucky on that side. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing would be just keep enjoying it. You're doing exactly what you want to be doing, um, and it could be a hell of a lot worse. You could be up and down a ladder on a building site, and and you're out here playing football for an hour and a half a day. Yeah, you absolutely could, my friend. You absolutely could. Uh, but take nothing away from the sacrifice and the dedication and the, and the devotion that it takes because you're quite right. Yeah. There's an element of luck, I suppose. I think we saw, I think it was Jake Humphrey on the high performance podcast this week, uh, saying something about every success has an element of luck to it. And I totally understand that. That's what you alluded to there. But in terms of dedicating yourself to a profession and, and not just getting there, but in this business, staying there, 
you mentioned earlier about you got your injury, you were out for four months with your hamstring and the manager changed. There's a very realistic possibility that the new manager could have come in and, and decided not to give you a new contract or, or extend your contract. And, and you live with that, you know, every single day, really, for, for, for the most part. So what, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you square with that fact? Especially when there's something you can't do, you can't go out there and show the manager, prove to the manager. How mentally do you go through the process of those four months, knowing that at the end you could get this news that means you're again uprooting and, and moving and finding a new club? Like there must be a strength and a resolution within you in that period specifically, not before and not after, because they're different things. But during that period, day by day, you must be telling yourself a story that allows you to get through that period. Can you share maybe some of that with with people out there so they might draw the same strength perhaps? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite like a, I'm quite a chilled out person in general. So I, I try not to get worked up about um, kind of like the things you can't control. Like, like I said to you earlier, I kind of wrap my head around being out for the rest of the season pretty quick because I knew it was going to happen. Like there, there was no getting around what was what was there in front of me. I was going to have surgery and I was going to be bed bound for a couple of weeks, and that's just that was my life. I had to deal with it. Um, I think in in this industry, you've kind of you've kind of got to be a bit like that, where you kind of just get on with things because a lot of the stuff that happens are out of your control. Um, so I think I I, I just kept thinking I all I've got all I can do and all I've got to do is do my rehab get my more my injury as strong as I can for when I get back because if if by the end of this injury Leighton Orient don't want me anymore I need to become back flying for the start of next season to maybe go on trial uh, I didn't know or to to sign somewhere else um so I think it all just come down to knowing knowing the situation I was in and dealing with it as, as best I could. And Tom, what perhaps for people who don't know that side of it, and perhaps people might look at professional football and say, well, once you sign your pro contract, that's it. You're guaranteed 10, 15 years as a professional. That's not necessarily the case, is it? And and even though you you even though you might say, well, you're going to be a professional, you have no idea or control over where that will be very few players obviously stay at one club. So can you give us an insight for a minute, aspiring players out there who, who, who are obviously dreaming of following in your footsteps? They, they want nothing more than to be a professional footballer. What is it really like when you have to move clubs and change? How does it affect your life? You know, is it, do you go into the next club the same as you did the one before? Are there lessons learned? What is this life like? Because you're not necessarily like a, somebody in the business world, you're not going in at an entry level, getting promoted to middle management, then getting the, you know, the CEO job, and then all of a sudden you stay there for the rest of your life till you retire. That's not the way it works. How does it work in real terms for professional footballers? Um, it, it's, it, can be, it can be tough. It can be very stressful, depending on the time of year. Um, I remember when, when I left Cardiff to go to Yeovil, I was, I think I was twenty, so I wasn't, I wasn't really young, but at the same time, looking back now, I was, I was still a kid. I was, I was a baby, of knowing how to look after myself uh, on my own, 
Um, but there was kind of, there was no crazy rush for me leaving to go to Yeovil because um, I'd had a chat with the Cardiff manager at the time, who was Neil Warnock. And he kind of said uh, to me and a few others, basically, like, you're good, but you're not my kind of player. Um, which at the time he wanted like big physical players who, who were going to play, play direct football. And at that time, our academy team didn't play like that. Um, and he, he, yeah, he, he's one of the, he was the first manager, like first team manager I'd had who had been 100% fully honest with me, basically saying, um, are you good? You're, you're not good for me. Um, so I remember we we was all in the canteen just after we had the meetings, and some of the boys were were fuming because he'd said similar stuff to them. But I, I remember thinking, well, all right, let's go and go and find a manager who who does want the qualities I've got. Um, at least he's come out and said it to me. Um, I'd rather him say that than him turn around to me and say, well, if you stay in the twenty ones for another six months we can have a look at you at the end of the season because the end of the season would come and I would have been in exactly the same position just six months later on with six months less experience in the game. Mm. Um, so I kind of, I, I knew I was leaving Cardiff, but there was no crazy rush because it was, I don't know, start of December. So I had all of December, all of Jan to try and find something. And luckily my agent knew the Yeovil manager at the time, Darren Way, from other dealings with other players. Um, so I pretty much moved to Yeovil like mid-December, um, lived in like a player's house as a bit of a trial for him to see how I am and for me to see how it is there. And then I signed in Jan then. But like there's, there's been other times when I signed, um, signed for Wigan on, I think it was, no, it wasn't late in the, transfer window but it was I got a phone call on the Wednesday night from my agent saying we're going to want to take you on loan and they want you to train tomorrow so <laughs> I, I was in the flat uh, in my flat up there with my girlfriend got off the phone and I said to her I was like oh got a, I've got to go down to Wigan um, expecting her to kind of like kick off saying like, oh I can't believe it leaving or whatever similar like that um, yeah. but to be fair she was she was like, yeah, you, you've got to go do it because you, you're not playing at Hibs at the moment. You've got to go do what you need to do. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I literally woke up that next morning, drove, what was it, I don't know, four, four and a half, five hours down to Wigan to go and meet the manager there um, and then started training Friday, played Saturday. And then that was that was me starting my loan at Wigan. Um, so with situations like that, it can be, it can be very stressful. It can be very fast where... You might have, like, I might have just started renting a new place up in Edinburgh, mm. Mm. and now I've got to move everything down to Wigan. Um, so, what's the practicalities of that? How does how does real life work behind that? Do you speak to someone? Does your agent get on the phone and look? He's a professional footballer. This is how it is. He's leaving. Like, what happens in real life? Um, it it can get it can get quite complicated. I've been quite lucky with with all the landlords and stuff I've had. They've mm. either been football fans or they've understood like the the lifestyle of a foot what can happen for a footballer. Um yeah. 
So every, every time I've had to leave quick, it's been, it's been before I should have left the tenancy. Yeah. yeah. But they, yeah. they've all pretty much just said, all right, just give us an extra month or yeah, we'll just pay, pay until we can find someone else. Um, so I've been quite lucky with that. But I, I can imagine some landlords finding out that they've got a footballer in their flat and them not taking up the same kind of like leniency with them saying, oh, he, well, he must have loads of money. I'm going to take everything, everything yeah. I can from um so yeah i mean I've, I've been pretty lucky but it can get very stressful very quickly um depending on the situation uh, and you have to just carry on you just have to perform you have to train all that stuff's going on in the background but like you said you're, you're four and a half hours down the road and, you, and you're into training straight away and you you're expected to perform immediately in fact you're being judged straight away in your loan and if you don't succeed you're not you're not playing and, and it all goes a different way from there so Again, these are the real. This is real life for a professional footballer in the football league. Yeah, um, and again, she she'd be happy that I'm saying this, but I've been lucky that every time I've had to move flat, I've had my girlfriend hanging back to pick up the slack. Um, to pack it so, all up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if if I were single, for example, I would have been having to travel up and down, do it yeah. all myself. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, on that side of it, I've, I've been very lucky. And it, everybody needs that that support network, I suppose, you know, to make it work. You mentioned some of the managers there that you've had. You mentioned Neil Warnock. That must have been an experience in and of itself. Like, talk to us. That everybody will know Neil Warnock and and probably have a view of how he is or, or certainly his persona from outside. But very few people will have played for him or been in the dressing room with him or understood what a week is like with him. So what can you share with us about that experience? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I didn't have like a, a good experience with him because I, I was, I wasn't, um, I wasn't involved with the, the first team at all. And, I was at the age where I wanted to be and I, I kind of needed to be. I was 19, 20. I'd had a little taste of being with first team and is is what I wanted to be doing. Um, but yeah, he, he's another one who's who's old school. He'll say it as it is, as he did with me. Um, and I think, with this, especially with the first team we had there at the time, they really bought into that um, with proper hard work, honest players, who were going to do whatever Warnock said and exactly how he said it. Um, so, so for the players we had there at the time, he was he was perfect. He just, like I said, he just just wasn't the manager for me um, at that time. And you alluded to the fact that he was honest with you. I mean, I suppose in one way, he, he didn't have to do that. He, like you said, he could have let you just go to stay in the 21s, just kick the can down the road and... and you know, he, he could have avoided that difficult conversation, but he chose to have it. And now you're probably grateful that he did. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because mm. I wish I had that chat with, or oh, I wish he was the manager earlier on in my mm. like development when I was probably like 18, 19. Because looking back now, one, I wasn't ready to play for Cardiff. Mm. Um, and two, I was never... I, like. 
I, I can see now that I never would have. Um, mm. Even if I'd had, like, got given like a proper full debut, mm. I th- I'd, I'd be surprised if I would have stayed in the team because mm. the championship physically is is like another level. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wish I had him as a manager to tell me that a year or two before, because then I could have started my journey a year or two a lot sooner, and um, it would have benefited me benefited me so much more to have started playing first team football in League Two, League One, even like conference, whatever it would be, mm. at eighteen instead of starting at twenty. We're kind of proving the concept here, Tom, that there is a way to deliver, well, you call it bad news or, or news you don't want to hear, but ultimately the truth, even even if it's something the player is not going to want to hear or would like something else, there is still an argument for honesty and delivering that message in the right way and and doing it you know, honestly at the right time. And I think a lot of aspiring coaches might struggle with that. They might avoid that moment. They might for whatever reason, consciously or subconsciously, they might shy away from that because it's just easier not to have that conversation. But ultimately, I feel like you're telling us there's a responsibility on the coaching network and the coaching world to to, to actually just kind of stand up and have those difficult conversations because of the impact it has on a player's life. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, it, I mean, it has an impact on a player's, like the individual player's life, but it has an impact on his team as well because there'll be be certain players out there who don't get told they're they're starting on Saturday and then they could completely bov the Friday training session off which could ruin the shape for the Saturday Um, so for for a manager to like kind of risk the final preparations for for a game day I I think it's it's crazy Um, and I, I know for a fact, because you speak to any footballer now, if a manager come up to you on the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning and said, look, I'm not starting you, um, not starting you on Saturday because of A, B and C, they'll walk out of that meeting. They might not might not agree with it, but they can accept it for, for the manager having having his own reasons. Um, and that, that's I think that's all it takes is just him calling you in for 30 seconds saying either these are the reasons why we're going to do something different or you've not been good enough, you need to liven up a bit. I don't think there's any point in them kind of beating around the bush with with the bad news because the player's not going to like what they hear either way they say it. So they may as well just like rip the bandage off and just do it and say exactly what the manager's thinking because I think in the long run that the player will respect it a lot more. Do you think perhaps coaches are reluctant to show their cards, especially earlier on in the week, maybe more so because as soon as you've told a player A, B and C in your example there, you're not playing because of A, B and C, they, that can then be picked apart a little bit and, and most modern players now will have a good understanding of you know, video or support from individual coaches or agents around them, whatever it might be, where they can get help to kind of counteract that argument if they want to. Maybe past in the day, manager would say, you're not, you're not playing because you're doing this, you're doing that. You go, okay, I'll get better at it. Nowadays, do you think managers are reluctant because maybe there will be pushback or maybe there's a little kind of vulnerability there on their own part or perhaps 
you know, maybe even they think, well, a player could get injured, so I want to delay it as long as possible. Or, or, or am I off the mark there? You've lived it for, you know, 10 years now. Do you think there's any truth in, in that in that rhetoric, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, it could be a combination of, of everything you just said. I mean, it, I, I, I don't think that it should be like that. I mean, it, yeah, it could be a combination of all of them. Um, but like I said, I think players in general will respect what they say a hell of a lot more if they just come out and do it instead of the the, the, the worst thing I've had is when they when they get their assistant to do it because they're getting someone to tell you but they're not saying it themselves. Um, I've had that at other clubs and that that's the worst thing they can do for me because I'm thinking why can't you just tell me? It takes it takes thirty seconds, but the assistants only spoke to me for. 20, 30 seconds, you could have quite easily done that. Why do they do that, Tom? Is it literally just to avoid the difficultness of looking you in the eye? Is that all it is? I'm guessing so, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see why it would be anything else. Um, yeah. But like, you know me, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to kick up a massive fuss. No, no. And that, you... again, that comes around to knowing, knowing your, players your players and how they're going to yeah. react to stuff. You... Obviously, I was, you know, a little part of your story in the younger days, but you always struck me as a, the words I would use to describe you, Tom, were conscientious, mature, sophisticated. You had a level of understanding. You were never, you know, over the top. You were never, like, you know, had to be the centre of attention. But at the same time, you you commanded a, a respect and a presence. Like, you couldn't be ignored in a room or you couldn't be ignored on the field because of the output, the things you did with the football or or just, you know, the way that you kind of led quietly behind and you at this level of sophistication in terms of you kind of always seem to look at things on a higher level or a different level beyond your years maybe if 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 people don't get into like the character of a player if they don't get into knowing them that way and maybe it's easier in the youth team for us you know when you're younger and you're developing your, yourself maybe it's easier for for people like me at that time to be able to do that but if professional coaches don't get into getting to know you that well or weren't part of your, you know, formative years, so to say, what's the best way for them to do it then? Like they just come up to you and talk to you or ask you to sit down and have a coffee with them or get out on the pitch and kick a few balls around. Like what, what would you say to the aspiring coach out there now who actually wants to do what you're saying, but maybe they don't know how? Yeah. I, th I think it's as simple as just having, having chats with people because you, you know, pretty, pretty quickly after having like a five, 10 minute chat with someone, little things about their personality. And the, obviously the more you speak and the more you get to know people, the more you'll learn about how they are as a person. And you, you, you'll be able to see on the pitch how they, how they react and how they treat the other team, like your team. So I just think it's kind of like picking up on little cues of how they are around the training ground, around around the other players, uh, and around you to kind of fully or try and get as good an understanding as you can of how they are personality-wise. And it's not easy. It's not easy. And you know, say this for any kind of aspiring coach listening to us now. I'm, you know, I'm I'm 23 years into a coaching career. Which I ne and I've said this before, I never really knew how it was going to go or where it was going to go or, or how it would develop. But I sit here now kind of looking back and thinking, well, 
actually, even in a, in a, in a, just a one-off coaching session with 18 players, there are so many different strategies and communication tools and just nuances that I'll use now. Sometimes I'll just look at a player with a little wry smile and they know what I mean. Other times I'll have an in-depth conversation. Sometimes it's a challenge. Sometimes it's a, you know, a, a, we won't deal with it here. We'll do it video later. There's no manual, like you said there, for knowing which one of those things. And we talked a little bit about the coach education side earlier. But for aspiring coaches that might not already be in the professional level, they can practice that now, can't they? They can they can think about how they are managing the 18 players in their groups, wherever they are, whether it's a, a Tuesday night, Thursday night voluntary session they're putting on or a kids session or, or in a youth academy or center of excellence or whatever it might be. They can start to think about those strategies and techniques now. And also, I don't think rush that, don't rush that process. I, I couldn't have done those things in my 20s. I needed to go through a lot of experience and, and different things and levels to be able to understand those nuances that I understand now. I don't think you can rush to that. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and I completely agree with you that it's, it's not an easy thing to do at all. Um, I, th I think for the, for the up-and-coming coaches and managers and stuff, obviously they start off um, in the early stages of their coaching badges and stuff, doing it with under 12s, 13s, 14s or whatever. Um, so if if you can, if they can start doing these little things with younger ages, because they gradually start working with older and older players, I think it'll be, it'll become a lot easier for them the more they do it because you're constantly getting towards like more mature, more like advanced players and, people um so yeah it's just a it's a practice thing is as exactly the same as anything taking a penalty you're not going to take a penalty perfect the first time it's going to take mm. it's going to take lots of repetitions and lots of conversations for the for them to one get comfortable with doing it and then mm. do it well mm. quite right and i wish i had a pound every time i watched you take a practice penalty <laughs> looking the other way no eyes as if to give the keeper the uh, the slip, but I, w I wouldn't have to work now, that's for sure. But yeah, my, absolutely. Uh, my, my eyes look in the wrong way because that's what I was aiming. <laughs> maybe, maybe so, maybe so. So let's talk a little bit, if you can, uh, about when it's going well. When, when, as a professional footballer now, when you are on your game, you're out there, you, you, you know, you, you'll be the first to tell, yeah, I didn't have a good game or I didn't do this right, didn't do that right. I get it. But let's talk about the flow of when you're doing it well. When, when it, does a game start and the crowd are chanting and you get your first touch? Is, is this myth of if my first one's a good one, is that an actual thing? And, and then can you recant a time maybe where you have played really, really well and just tell us about how that felt and what that was and maybe some benchmarks or identifiers you had that kept you on track to continue to play well. There's a lot in that question, I know, but uh, maybe pick that apart if you can. Yeah. Um, well, th to start with, for me personally, anyway, I'm, I'm definitely one who's not consciously thinking during the game, but consciously thinking before the game, whatever you do first, try and make it a positive thing. 
whether it's just a simple pass where you, you, you make a good pass or if it's a, you're defending, you making sure you defend the right way or it's a header, what, whatever it is you do, make sure it's a positive thing. Um, I'll, I'll always have a little chat to myself before kickoff as well. It, it could be anything. It's not like a certain phrase or anything I'll, I'll say. It's just kind of me trying to not like big myself up, but kind of talk myself into having a, a good game. Um, and then once it gets going, obviously you, you, you're not thinking about, oh, I need to make this pass right. And it's kind of, it comes as second nature. It's just you kind of working off instinct and whatever you see in front of you is is what you've got to deal with. Um, and yeah, on on, it, on any games where where I've been playing playing specifically well, um, I think for me anyway, it's, it's like I said, it's, it's instinct. Once I start overthinking stuff, that's when I'll try and complicate it and and start making just like stupid errors that I I would never normally make. Um, is is it easy, Tom, when when you've got when you're in that flow and you've got that instinct, does the game slow down? Does it feel easier? Are you conscious of that kind of overriding feeling? Or is it afterwards you look back and go, yeah, I played well there? Like, does it actually get easier or feel different when you're in the moment and in the flow and playing well? Uh, well, I, I definitely won't be thinking during the game, oh, I'm doing all right here. I keep doing mm. what I'm doing and stuff. I, mm. I might think uh, when I'm walking off at half time, I might think, yeah, I've, I've done all right there. Um, and then obviously at the end of the game you'll you'll be thinking things through during the game of what you've done good and bad. Um, but yeah, once I think once you've you've had a good start or you're in a good good bit of form in the team, I'll I'll just tick the boxes of doing the right thing at the right time mm. without thinking about it, just because I know what my job is and I'm not I'm not going to try and do stuff that I'm not good at because. One, it's, it's a bad look for me and it's not going to help the team out as well because chances are if I'm not good at it, I'm not going to succeed in doing doing that act or of whatever it is. Absolutely. We had Jodie Taylor on the podcast. Jodie, obviously phenomenal. The female side, done everything in the game. Champions League winner, been to World Cups, everything. And, and I shared a story in that episode about when we got to the, the knockout rounds in the World Cup and... I would, you know, you can go back and listen to that for those that have maybe heard it. But the gist of what I was saying was that I'd gotten to a stage in the tournament where, as a coach, I felt like I could look back and say, well, at least we've justified our being here. At least we've um, done enough to say that we didn't fail. Or it was look, I was looking for this constant loop of feedback to say that it was all worth it, if you like. And you kind of alluded there to the fact that you're saying, Towards the end of a game, you're thinking, okay, I've, maybe I've done enough to get the team next week, or maybe I've. Are, are you thinking that way towards the end of a match, or does that, like you say, come in a reflection after, or do you wait till Monday morning to be told? Because because it's very different, obviously, in my example, your example, but similar thought process. Um, I'll I'll reflect on the game, like, I mean, there'll there'll always be conversations in the change rooms of whoever you're sat next to of what they thought of the game and what you thought of the game. So I'll pretty it'll pretty be pretty much be an instant reflection on the game of of how it was. I'll probably have reflection on my own performance like the same time or on the drive home. 
I, I won't think too much about um, the next game up until probably I'm I'm back at the training ground, but at whatever day that is, um, because as much as as much as football's my career, I don't want it to take over like my home life because I think it can. I don't know. It it can seriously affect how you live your life day to day if that's all you're thinking about. So I I try to switch off from football a hundred percent once I'm back in the house, um, because I because I'll be doing so much analysis and stuff on Monday morning. Um, I might watch the game back on Sunday, but that's pretty much as as much as I go to um, once I get home. I really want to ask you about that, mate, because we've had a lot of people in the industry who I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, the prerequisite was you lose a game, you don't speak to your family for five days, you, you know, you're you really upset and it, and it kind of has this this dire effect on your life. And I think that's changing. I hope that's changing. I heard Jamie Carragher speaking recently about how he wishes he hadn't have been so much that way, but he couldn't have been any other way at the time. So can you tell people maybe who might be stuck in that now, what works for you? How do you switch off when you come back? And, and you know, you never want to stop thinking about getting better and you, you're dedicated to your craft, but you've got to manage your own life as well. How, how do you actually do that? Um, well, I've definitely got better since I've got a bit older. Um, for me personally, I mean, I, I don't know. I, a big part of it for me actually was uh, when girlfriend moved in, I was thinking if I've had a bad game or it's not gone exactly how I wanted, I don't want to take that back and um, be miserable, sat around her for the for the rest of the evening. And you can go and I don't know, go and hang out with your schoolmates for for an hour or two, go and have a go and have a beer or go out for food with them. I think so. The big thing for me, I think, is just trying to take your mind off it. Go and do something. If if it's not gone exactly how you wanted it to do. Um, try and distract yourself as much as you can because you know when Monday morning comes round, the loop starts again. You start either doing analysis on the game that's just happened or you start preparing for the for the next game and there's no point you being miserable about mm. the game that's just happened going into the one that's this next next weekend. Because it's so quick, yeah. Gary Neville talks about the idea of uh, mini retirements. He talks about working hard for a period and then at the end of said arbitrary figure, whether it's 30 days, 60 days, whatever, he'll have a mini retirement where he'll have a weekend or maybe a couple of days where he doesn't do anything. Um, and that's one technique that I've heard I wanted to share with people listening. The other one I've, I've seen this work quite well in my life is the idea of 90-day sprints. So you three months, basically, where you know you're going to be up against it. You know you're going to be focusing a lot of time and energy on your industry, your work, or whatever it might be. It could be anything. And at the end of that 90 days is where you really take stock you know, of how it's all gone, and maybe you do have a break or whatever, but you know you're working during that period. So they, they might be things that help some people listening. But ultimately, as a professional footballer, you don't have that luxury because, as you said, you, you, might be, you might get 12 hours off or 24 hours off if you're lucky. So... And even then, you're rolling into the next week or the next game. So that must be a really difficult process to get your head around in terms of where you do give yourself a bit of a break mentally and how you do manage the day-to-day. Because that's all going to be there after your playing career. When your playing career is done, it's your family and your relationships and everything else is all going to be there. 
Um, and that must be really tough as well. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think it can be tough. I think, I think it would be a lot tougher for, say, one of my schoolmates who, who doesn't play football like professionally to, for, to throw one of them into the situation. I think it would be tough. But for someone who's been in the game since they were like teenage, say teenager, 13, 14 or whatever, that's all you've kind of known. So you just adapt with how your life is going. So when, or once you get your first pro contract and you're in first team environment, you might not be starting for the first team, but you can, you can see how, how they go about their, their daily lives and how on a Monday they, they're acting and you can just kind of take little bits from, from each player um, to, to understand better how to, how to react to stuff. We've talked a lot about the life in the game. We've talked a lot about what, you know, the environment around you and how things work, how they don't work. What works for some people might not work for others. I think there's a great concept you're talking about there of each individual being multifaceted and complex. This is so difficult to put your finger on where success comes from. As a player, I suppose, yet yeah, you can carry out your role in the team. You can you know, you can, you can deliver the outcomes the manager wants. You can score a goal or stop a goal. I get it. But for aspiring coaches, is there any, like, golden advice you would offer them in terms of if you're only going to get one thing right, what what should it be to get right? I think it f for for me personally, I, I, I'll always go back to the, to the honesty side of it. I think... But I think in day-to-day -day life is is always best to be honest. But especially when you're you're dealing with people's careers, their lives. Um, I th yeah, I think 100% the the honesty side of it and how you communicate with with people's uh, or well with players anyway is the is definitely the most important thing for me anyway. And I wanted to touch on on you individually and and your mindset and the way you went about it. Obviously, you know while we were together, I I, I got I was very fortunate to watch a, you know a little bit of your development, obviously through your time in the academy there. But you were always a player who was looking for the extra, asking for the extra. You would constantly be coming in, asking me for your individual clips from a game, and you'd want to go through them or you'd want to look at them yourself or whatever it was. And you'd always be out there and never forget you practicing your dead balls, your free kicks, your corners, your passing. You, you always had that extra element of work ethic and understanding about you. Where, where, did, where did that come from? And, and how, what would you say, how important was that in terms of your actual getting to the professional level in the long run for, for players who are coming up and maybe aspiring to do the same thing? Uh, it's probably come from my dad basically telling me to go and do it. Um, and I, I knew if, if he was there watching training and especially in the early days, um, and he hadn't seen me doing any extras or asking questions and I'd definitely hear about it and the drive home. Um, so in terms of, in terms of doing the extras and stuff, yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely him because the amount of, the amount of hours and 
sessions that I did with him down at the local park, working on little drills. He, he wasn't a coach. He didn't know anything about coaching, but he, he knew he knew little things that I could have worked on, and 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 we did that. Um, so we would we'd spend hours and hours down um, my local park working on my left foot, making sure my left foot is exactly the same as my right foot, and we wouldn't leave until. I'd hit the wall 10 times on the full with my left foot and then do my right foot. Um, so I think he's kind of just ingrained me doing extras into into my brain and it's kind of just stayed with me. And obviously when, when you're in professional environments and academy environments, you've got everything there to, to help you improve. So why wouldn't you use it? It's, you've got coaches who are there qualified at, up to up to the maximum level you've got every piece of facility that you could think of you'd, you'd be stupid not to use the the things there um to help you improve as much as you can and hopefully there's you know young academy player out there who might listen to this in the years to come and and think actually is is there more i can do can i stay 15 minutes with a bag of balls and hit 20 balls and try and bend them into the top corner or, or, or work on that turn or whatever they might do. And, you know, what a wonderful support network and parents, your dad like for doing that work with you and, and any parent out there listening who might think, well, where do, where can I help my son? What can I do for my daughter? I want them to have the best. I want them to be the best. It sounds like just investing that time and, and ultimately teaching you about dedication. Uh, Cause that couldn't have been easy. There must've been times it was cold and, red and raining and you wanted to go home and, and you had to stick to it. But, but, you know, the foresight of, of a parent in those moments is actually what makes you the person you become, I suppose, and a debt of gratitude for that, for sure. Yeah, 100%. I mean, like I said earlier, the, the amount of hours that he put into the little drills and practice um, were, were massive for me and stuff stuff that have stayed with me even up until now and not just that, the the hours and the miles that they drove to come and watch me up and down the country. They must have they must have been to every single training ground in the country to watch me play football for 90 minutes. It's just Plymouth it's away, Ipswich yeah. away, those kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, all all of them. Name a team, they've they've been yeah. um yeah. so yeah, I mean they they they're my parents, that there'll be other parents out there that only want the best for their kids. Um, yeah. they'll be doing exactly the same stuff. So, yeah, um, yeah def definitely a massive appreciation to, to my mum and dad. Yeah, uh, and to all parents out there who ultimately are, are walking the line between trying to help and support their, their, their young player, but also handing them over to assist them to try and gain their apprenticeship and develop into one of the hardest industries in the world. We've talked about this before. You, If you spend eight years in school and college to become a doctor, you're pretty much going to become a doctor. You could spend more than eight years in the football industry trying to become a footballer and you have zero guarantee that anything mm. will ever come out of it. So never mind employment at the end. A couple of things to finish with then. Um, I want to talk about you in the future a little bit, but really last thing I want to kind of cover with you is, is half time. I want to talk about what it's really like at half time. The whistle goes for half time. You're, you, you, you're often, you know, sprightly jogging in or walking in if you play well or not waiting for what's about to come what there's there's a there's a whole myriad of strategies and things that people say the 15 minutes halftime should be handled like how is it 
what is the reality of it and what's the best way it can be handled in terms of that intervention at half-time? Because you don't have very long. No, nah, yeah, obviously you only, or manager's only got 15 minutes to, to get over the message um, with with what he wants to, to happen in the second half. You'll get in, you'll sit down in your little spot and you, you'll have, I don't know, four or five minutes where the manager will be chatting to his assistant in his, his little office, um, probably probably talking about who's going to be good cop, who's going to be bad cop when they get in there. Um, so yeah, d- during that four or five minutes, the the players will be will be talking about what's just happened and what needs to happen, um, and then he'll he'll come in and the assistant, the coach will will say his piece, and then the manager will will uh, will do the same. We'll we'll normally watch uh, on like the projector or the the telly different clips of what what he's liked or what he's not liked, and. Um, Things that he thinks will will get the better of the, the the other team in the second half, but a lot of the time, pretty it's pretty calm. Obviously, depending on what's going on, sometimes it can be a little bit livelier. And during that time, you know, the players get together and kind of, you know, this is not happening, this is happening, or or is it generally kept to a level of you know, a couple of things are said, wait for the coaches, and then there's a there's a speech of some sort. Is this is this myth? Is this a myth, or is this a real thing that a coach can have the ability to come in and speak in such a way that you, you you know you're off your seat and out for the second half, and that's where the game was won? Have you ever you ever experienced that? I, I don't know if I can pinpoint a game where that's happened, but there'll definitely be times where where we've been playing and we'll we'll need a lift. You you can you can feel it straight away if the if you're just having like a flat game where it's just really like dull and flat in the game and you'll come in and the the manager will just get you going and and then off off you pop into the second half and it's a completely different game. You, you start hearing the fans, the atmosphere is lifted, everyone feels livelier and it's it's just like a completely different game just in the second half. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't remember a time where I've... No, noticed everyone standing up and clapping the manager's speech because because he's got us going. Um, <laughs> yeah, there, there, yeah, there'll definitely have been occasions where whatever your manager said has got a massive reaction out of the mm. out of the squad. Mm. Mm. Still a very important time, obviously. Um, <clears throat> as we wrap up here, Tom, I want to turn you know the attention to the future and. You've already achieved a dream of millions. This is not. This is literally not an overreach to say you've already achieved the dream of millions of young people around the world who want to be a professional footballer. And you've been doing it for a long time. And you know you're still, you still, you're kind of coming to the kind of you know peak of your career now, where you know you must have ambitions and you you have things you want to do in the game. But where where does it go from here? What's the next? few years of your playing career look like and perhaps the transition after? Um, I mean, we've we, we just come off a, an unbelievable season last season of getting promoted to League One. And when, once you've had, well, no, I remember a meeting we had at the start of the season and the manager said, the feeling you'll get of promotion is addictive. Like the the euphoria you have of that, the time the final whistle goes and it's 100% confirmed, 
it's the kind of thing you want to bottle up and just keep it forever. Um, so I'd love to be able to get that feeling again of, of another promotion. Whether that's here at Orient, that would be, it would be amazing because the group we've got here is, is unbelievable. It's so close. It's so tight, like a little family. Amazing to experience that. But in general, I just want to kind of try and push myself as much as I can and play to as high a level as, as I can. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to pinpoint a, a level to what I think I should or want to play at because things change and, and you can't always affect stuff like that. But as long as I'm, as long as I'm happy at the end of my career with what I've achieved, then, um, then I'll be a, I'll be a happy man. And what is that moment of promotion? Like when that whistle goes, it describe it. Like what is it like? Um, it was, it was insane because we we played Gillingham away. Um, I think it was five or six games before the end of the season. Um, and we started the game off really well. We play in probably some of our best football. It was, it was almost as if it was just another game. There, there were no nerves through the team. It was just everything we were trying was working. And then after about 15, 20 minutes, one of the centre-offs uh, got sent off. Um, he was last man on the edge of the box and got sent off. And then they scored that free kick. And it was kind of like, oh, my God, everything is crumbling. Going wrong. Yeah. Um, and then they scored another one in the second half. And then at about 80 minutes, the floodlights on the pitch turned off. So everyone was like off the pitch for about 20 minutes. What? Because we, we didn't know if the game was going to be able to carry on or not. Um, yeah. Then we come back out onto the pitch after they fixed the floodlights. We start like doing like a little, I don't know, some little warm up, just kicking a ball about doing stretches and stuff. Yeah. And then out of nowhere, we, we get the news that the other games had like gone in our favour. So it didn't matter right. what happened in our game, we were going up. Um, so then the whole bench, all the boys not in the squad, jumped straight on the pitch, um, jumping up and down and just like celebrating just before the game was about to kick off again. And um, that's the moment you knew you were promoted. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was uh, the most surreal night ever because everything that could have gone wrong did, but then it didn't matter because um, we, we still went up. And then the last 10 minutes, you would, if you see highlights from that game, you wouldn't believe what you're seeing. Because we'd just been sat around for 20 minutes, freezing cold. The game yeah. starts again. And for those last 10 minutes, I reckon Gillingham passed the ball around the back four for nine and a half of those minutes with none of us moving because like we weren't going to run around and get injured because yeah. no point we were up Gillingham was safe but they just passed it around between them for 10 minutes um and then yeah whistle went and it was just the biggest party ever for the next four weeks then um <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable um I, th I think the, the Saturday after we we confirmed we were we we won the league as well but that like week was just absolute carnage um, of every every afternoon off, every day off, all the boys straight into London, um, yeah. just enjoying all the work 
that we put into for the last nine months or whatever. Um, and then we had like a big family day on the last last home game of the season. Um, the owners put on like a bit of a bit of a do for family, friends, and whatever. Um, so that was good. And then uh, we all went away then to to Marbella for the summer. Um, and I won't tell you anything about that trip on this podcast. But uh, it was it was good maybe, fun. maybe a different one. Yeah, it was you, very uh, good. You have to enjoy the moments, don't you? You and this is probably a, a you know something to nod towards for anybody who wants to aspire to be in in football. There will definitely be more downs than there are ups for most people. So you have to enjoy the the league wins and the and the titles and the promotions and the and that and that period in time that you just mentioned that week. You get these special weeks in elite sport. You get these moments in your life where you've got to grasp it. Yes, of course, you've got to be sensible. Of course, you have responsibilities. But you also have to realise you're in a special moment and, and remember it and drink it in and take five minutes just to understand that this is what the work is all for. And it is so special. And, and it looks like you certainly did that. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Because, like you said, you, you've got to savour them because they're few and far between. Um, you work from, was it, early August to start of May every season for maybe one, maybe two promotions if you're lucky. Um, yeah, when when they do come around, you, you definitely have to, to enjoy it and, and take it all in as, as best you can. Tom, I can't thank you enough for the time you've given us, for the insight, for the honesty, for walking us through what it's really like to live a life dedicated in the Football League and you know so many great insights for, for parents, for coaches, for players to, 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 to get into and draw strength from. That's why we wanted to do this in the first place. Personally for me, I'm delighted to see how it's worked out for you, my friend, and it, it's great to watch you know from the sidelines uh, you know, and monitor everybody's career as you go on and do things. And that's not just me, that's every coach who's ever coached a young player in their life so for all of those people just want to say congratulations and how proud we are of you and everybody else who's walked that path it's been an absolutely great episode and can't wait to get it out there thank you very much thank you for having me and also thank you for all the help you give me over the years and um, it's very much appreciated thank you matt it's all uh, it, it's it's what we do and i think for everybody, you know, who could speak to a player like you who's come out the other end, I think they would all say they'd do it all over again. So, great, fantastic. Wishing you all the best, and uh, we'll certainly be following closely over the next few years as you uh, as you transition into the things you're going to do. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much.